0: our lives but as Paul said this morning I want to do a whistle-stop tour through the whole Bible and I haven't got that long to do it in so it's going to be quite fast-paced I think but hopefully it'll be okay hopefully I'll take you with me um and we'll see You'll know if I've run out of time because we'll only get to, you know, halfway through the Bible or something like that. But what my hope is this morning is to show that throughout all of human history, God has been especially concerned about the poorest and the most vulnerable and the marginalized. That actually he invites us, those who are following him, to share that concern with him and to do something about it. I'm so excited to be speaking on the first Sunday in the new direction. Because part of the reason we've changed direction, some of it's to aid us on Sundays and to make Sundays run um, better for us. But some of it is because in that space over there, we're going to be building a warehouse for our food bank, our anti trafficking work, baby basics, and the Syrian resettlement project. And over in that direction, Through the walls over there, we're going to be building a community action hub. And the idea of that is that we want to more effectively serve and bless some of the poorest people in our communities in Hastings and the surrounding areas in 1066 country. So that's part of why we're doing it. But also, we're facing this new direction where you are all currently facing the town. You're facing Hastings, you're facing actually where. The poverty I'm going to be talking about this morning is, and so I'm just really excited that on this first Sunday, facing this direction with all that we're about to do, the subject that we're speaking on, that I'm like the privilege of speaking on, is God's heart for the poor. I think it's significant for us as a church. You know, the Bible is explicitly clear that God has a heart for the poor that the poor are of vital concern to him, that he is especially concerned about people facing poverty. If you're here this morning and you think, I feel like I'm in poverty, the wonderful news is that God's heart is especially for you, that he loves you and his heart is to lift you up out of poverty so that you might lead others out of poverty too. The American preacher Jonathan Edwards, who lived in the 18th century and is known as one of the um, most important American theologians that has ever lived, he said this Where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms than the command of giving to the poor? It is mentioned in Scripture not only as a duty, but a great duty, as one of the greater and more essential duties. It is positively and frequently insisted on by God. That's a pretty bold claim. But do you know what? It is astonishingly easy to back it up with just a cursory glance through the Bible, which is what we're going to do this morning. At the very start of the Bible, we see that God created a perfect world. This world was designed to be perfect. And what that meant is there was no sin there was no wrongdoing, there was no injustice, there was no pain, there was no death, and there was no poverty. There was no poverty in the world that God had created because it was perfect. Um, in the world God created, there were no natural disasters. There weren't famines or earthquakes, things that would have left people hungry and homeless. There was also because there was no sin, there was no selfishness or greed. There was nothing that I could do that would push you into poverty before sin came into the world. But as soon as sin entered the world, the potential for poverty came with it. As soon as sin appeared, it was like this fracture in God's original creation. Poverty came with it soon after. And it's been a pressing and vital concern for God ever since. First of all, we see about God's concern about poverty in the law. That's the books of the Bible from Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, where God sets out specific provisions for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner. Before we even get to kind of the law that he gave to Moses, we see it in the life of Joseph. Many of us will know the story of Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers, but he ended up overseeing great storehouses of food that the whole of Egypt would be provided for when a famine came. And, you know, so often when we talk about Joseph, for those of us who do know the story, who speak about it, there's a particular verse we talk about where um, Joseph says to his brothers, years later, after they've sold him into slavery, they come and they meet him again, and he says to them, what you intended for evil, God has used for good. And it's a wonderful verse, but often we stop short of mentioning the actual reason Why he says that? Because in Genesis 45, it tells us that the reason God meant it for good was otherwise you would have become destitute. God sent Joseph ahead so that the famine wouldn't plunge God's people into poverty. He was concerned about their physical needs and their basic survival as well as about how they were doing spiritually. Interestingly, he wasn't just concerned about their survival because he also saved multitudes of Egyptians at the same time. Even though God knew the Egyptians would go on to oppress his people, God's care for those in poverty, God's care for people made in his image, which is every single person who has ever lived, who lives today and who will live in the future, is such that he doesn't want anyone to starve to death. He doesn't want anyone to fall into debt. He doesn't want anyone to be trapped in poverty. We see it in the law itself. As I said, this is whistle-stop, so I'm going to move quite fast through the different passages. But we see it in the law itself, the law that was given to Moses, where God was setting out how his people should live, how society would flourish. The idea was that God said to his people, if you live this way... Everyone around you will see that this is the best way to live and they will know that I am God. And they will know that I am good because they'll see that when you live according to my ways, you flourish, you do well. Life goes well for you. And there are so many stipulations in the law that are about those facing poverty and injustice. It's really incredible because sometimes when we think about the law in the Old Testament, it can seem like it's just rules and regulations and don't do this and do that. It can almost just seem, well, here's just a load of rules. I don't really understand what it's about. But it's intended so that society will do well and so that no one would be left behind. And so we see it in things like gleaning, which was when farmers would go and pick up their crops and they would be feeding their families but also making a living by selling their crops to other people and as they picked up their crops some would inevitably fall by the wayside and God says in the law when that happens don't go back and pick up what gets left behind but leave it for those who don't have food leave it for the widow and the fatherless the foreigner and the poor because you might be tempted to go and pick it up so that you have more to eat Or so that you can make more money by selling it. God says don't do that. He also says make sure you pay people their wages on time. And he says that among God's people, no one should make a profit on food. Imagine that. Imagine if in our society, no profit was made on food. It would be a lot cheaper, wouldn't it? We wouldn't see it keep rising up and up and up. It also says, God also says don't charge interest on loans. And again, imagine that in our society if we, if we didn't charge interest on loans. Do you know that um, debt is one of the biggest causes of suicide and one of the biggest causes of marital breakdown in our nation? And so often when people are trapped in debt, it's because they are charged exorbitant interest rates. Do you know, even with the collapse of companies like Wonga, you can still get away at the moment with charging 4,000% interest, even with law change that has come. Imagine what it's like to be stuck... As someone who's in the past been in huge amounts of debt myself, you feel weighed down and enslaved by it. God says don't charge interest on loans. He also says that tithes, that offerings that are given to his people are not just for the priests, but also for the poor. Interestingly, he, in the law, in Deuteronomy uh, 15, we read about the Sabbath year, that's the seventh year. So God says, among my people, every seventh year, I want you to cancel all debts. Imagine that. Imagine if we lived in a society where no matter how trapped by debt you felt, you would know that you only had to wait a maximum of seven years. But once the Sabbath year came around, you'd be debt free. You could start again. It would mean you would never be hopeless. Also, there's the um, year of Jubilee. Jubilee. In Leviticus 25, that's the 50th year, where not only were debts cancelled, but if you had had to put yourself into slavery, which people had to do to survive, you would be set free. And if you had had to sell your land to survive, maybe land that had been in your family for generations, if you'd had to sell it, it would be restored to you in the year of Jubilee. It's amazing, actually, if we really think about what this tells us about the character of God, it's beautiful. God is beautiful, that he would be so concerned that no one would get trapped and stuck in poverty, that he would set this at the heart of his society, that he would modify the extremes of wealth and poverty so that the rich couldn't just go on getting richer and richer and richer at the expense of the poor. And the poor could never, ever be in a hopeless state because they would know either the Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee is coming and freedom's coming. And do you know what, it's not only that, it's not only that in the 50th year or the seventh year you get your freedom or you get your debts cancelled, but God says to his people, if you've taken someone as a slave or you've taken someone's land or someone's in debt to you, when you release them in the Sabbath year or in the year of Jubilee, when you release them, do not send them away empty handed, but supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor and your winepress. It says that in Deuteronomy 15. So it's not just, well, okay, you're free now. You can go do what you want. Hopefully you'll make a good go of it this time around and you'll be okay. No, it's God saying give abundantly, give liberally, so that the person you're setting free has the maximum chance of doing well in life. I think this is so beautiful and it's so wonderful what it tells us about who God is. Another thing it says in Deuteronomy 15 is this. There need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. This illustrates that God's desire is that there would be no poor among his people. It shows us that if we fully live as God tells us to live, there need be no poverty among us. I think we all know that we don't live as God has told us to live, that in a world that now is full of sin, we can't live, society as a whole, without the Spirit of God, can't live as God has said. So we know that we haven't been And we're still not careful to follow all these commands. And so Jesus said later, you'll always have the poor with you. And we're going to get to that in a bit. But before we get to that, the whole idea of the law was that by it, God's people would flourish and would be distinctive from all the other peoples on the earth. Set apart a lack of poverty in our midst is supposed to be one of the things that sets us apart from our communities, from the society around us. Every people group should have been able to look at the people of God then and should be able to look at the people of God now and see the way we live and be so amazed that they can't help but say, wow, the God they serve knows what he's doing. The God they serve wants us to do well. He loves us and wants us to flourish. People should be able to look at us and see that. And we'll see later that Um, how much more that this is true of us today, living now when we live. Because, you know, in the Old Testament, they were living before Jesus had died, before Jesus had risen from the dead. And so actually, though God gave them the model for how they could live, they were powerless to fully do it. Because they didn't have the Spirit of God living in them. They were powerless because they were trapped in the power of sin still. But we're going to see later how that's changed for us, because now Jesus has died and he has risen from the dead. And we have the Holy Spirit who doesn't give us a list of rules to follow, but shapes our hearts that we might be more and more like Jesus. So God's heart for the poor is in the law. It's also in the history books in the Bible. That's Joshua to Esther, where we see it in things like David's concern for Mephibosheth, I'm putting up verses under each section. You can um, email me or email the church office during the week if you want to get these slides or take pictures of it or whatever. Because I'm not running through every passage that comes up. These are just key passages that if you want to dig into this, I just wanted you to be able to see visually just a snapshot of all the verses in the Bible. This isn't even half of them. It's not even a quarter of them. So if you want to look at David's concern for Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, who was in poverty, you can see it in 2 Samuel 9. In the book of Esther, you can see it when um, the people of God are rescued. A guy called Mordecai says that when we're celebrating what God has done for us, let's give gifts to the poor at the same time as part of our celebrations. In 1 Samuel, we see it when a woman called Hannah comes to give her son to the priest, Eli, and she prays. And she's praying to the God who lifts the needy out of the ash heap. That's what she says. God sends his prophets, Elijah and Elisha, to widows, not just for spiritual purposes, but also to bless them. They are given to abundantly when the people of God come to their homes. Then in Nehemiah, we've got people who are facing famine and who say to Nehemiah, we're having to get into debt and we're having to sell ourselves into slavery to buy food. Will you please speak up on our behalf? Will you advocate for us? And Nehemiah does that. But it's not only that. He also feeds 150 people at his own table. There's a personal implication as well as something corporate. That happens. And that's true for us. You know, we're a church that has in our vision statement that we want to be a church that cares for the poorest. But that's not something the church does. That's not something that just happens in this building. That's something that every one of us here today who calls ourselves a follower of Jesus Christ needs to be growing in and is invited to participate in. We see it in the poetic books in the Old Testament, which is Job to Song of Songs and also Lamentations as well. I've been reading Job in my own personal study that time this year. And what's really struck me is, you know, Job's friends say to Job, you must have sinned because Job is this wealthy guy. He has loads of money, loads of possessions, this amazing family, and he loses it all. And his friends say, well, you must have done something wrong. You must have bought this on yourself. They say to him, you must have forgotten and oppressed the poor. They accuse Job. They say, you must have done things like you must have withheld bread from the hungry. You must have sent widows away empty-handed. You must have crushed the fatherless. Actually, their accusations about Job and his sin, part of that is they're saying you didn't deal with poverty, or not only you didn't deal with it, but you made it worse. And Job, in his defense, when he's saying, I haven't done anything wrong, he's saying, I'm an innocent man. He points out that care for those in need has been one of the hallmarks of how he's lived a life pleasing to God. He says, I've rescued the poor. He actually says, I have caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Isn't that amazing? I love that. That's something I want to do. I want to cause the widow's heart to sing for joy. He says, I've been a father to the needy. He actually says, I've searched out the cause of strangers that I might do justice for them. I've wept with those who are going through a hard time and my soul has grieved for those in poverty. So when Job is saying, actually, I've lived a life pleasing to God, again, central to it is his care and concern for those who have less than he has. And then we come to the Psalms and the Proverbs, where we learn that God himself is the defender of the fatherless. God himself is the one who acts on behalf of the oppressed and those in poverty. It's not just that, but in Psalm 41, it says that those who consider the poor are blessed by God. There's a promise. Those who consider the poor are blessed by God, protected from their enemies, and restored from sickness. Isn't that incredible? And that's not the only place in the Bible we we see that there's a promise attached to how we treat those um, who are struggling in poverty. The Psalms and the Proverbs show God's active concern for those who are poor and invite us to be similarly active. In fact, it says that it's actually a sign of how we relate to God, in Proverbs 14, it says, if we oppress the poor, we show contempt for our maker. Because we have the same maker. And it says that if we're kind to those in need, we're actually honoring God when we do that. I think perhaps most famously in the Old Testament, God's heart for the poor is in the prophets, Isaiah through to Malachi. Where we see that actually, it's not just that God invites us to participate in caring for those in need. It's actually something he requires of us. It's actually something that he says, this is a hallmark of people who love me and know me. We see it in um, Isaiah 58, where it talks about true fasting, where God says you can observe all these religious rituals. You can have all these outward signs of being religious people. But actually, if you're not feeding the hungry setting the oppressed free, offering clothing and shelter to those who need it, then you're actually not doing what is true fasting. It's in Isaiah 61 where it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bring release for the captives. To bring freedom for the prisoner, to bring sight for the blind, to bring binding up of the broken-hearted. It's in Micah six verse eight where it says, "What does the Lord your God require of you? But to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God." And again, there's a promise. You know, in Isaiah fifty-eight where it talks about true fasting, it says that when you do this, when you feed the hungry, when you um, care for those who don't have shelter, when you care about the plight of the oppressed, it says, then your light will come. Then your healing will come. It says, then your gloom becomes like the noon day. That's in Isaiah 58 verse 10. Then God satisfies your desires. And do you know what? I found that to be true in my own life. So much of the time, if I'm feeling miserable about my own life, whether with just cause or often not, If I start to think about helping other people who have less than me, I find that my gloom becomes like the noonday. I find that God lifts me up as I seek to lift other people up. You know, caring for those in need is not just an afterthought for the follower of Jesus, for the follower of God. It's not just something we're to do when we get around to it. In Isaiah 58, it says, spend yourself on behalf of the poor. It says, pour yourself out on behalf of the poor. It's not a passive thing, is it? You can see it from words like that. It is an active thing. And then we come to the New Testament. So we're doing all right. We've got to the New Testament. That's good. We come to the New Testament and we get to the gospels where it's the very starting point for the ministry of Jesus. You know, Jesus has been out in the wilderness, he's been tempted, and he comes back in the power of the Spirit. And in Luke 4, it says he, st- he goes to the synagogue and he's handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And it says he found the place where it is written. You know, the bit that Jesus reads isn't an accident It's not that that was the page it was open on. It's not that that was the part of the scroll that his eyes fell on and he just accidentally read it. It says, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the sovereign Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The passage I just referred to in Isaiah about release from captives, opening up the blind eyes, broken hearts being healed. You know, when Jesus came, there was this invasion of heaven to earth. Everything that God created in the first place, where there was no sin and no sickness, no pain and no poverty, Jesus comes and starts to roll it out across the earth. Jesus comes. And, you know, it's basically where Jesus, who is perfect and sinless, comes to what is imperfect and sin-sick and says, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so often when we talk about things like that, what we, what we see is we talk about miracles and healings and signs and wonders. And those things are wonderful and amazing, and I'd love to see a lot more of them. But often we then don't talk about the fact that it also meant that the poor were lifted up out of poverty. That was a sign of the kingdom. Those who'd been trapped in poverty of one type or another for years, for decades, some cases even since birth, Jesus came and set them free. Jesus came and lifted them up out of their poverty. What a wonderful God we're worshipping. Isn't he wonderful? And this is part of undoing the damage of the fall, undoing the damage of sin, and it's a foretaste of where we're heading. It's a foretaste. When Jesus returns, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no sin, and therefore there will be no poverty. There will be no injustice. There will be no greed, no selfishness, no pain. It's going to be amazing. As well as starting his ministry by proclaiming that he was good news for the poor, Jesus also said that our concern for those in need Is an indicator of how closely we're following him. That's in Matthew 25. He said that it's just like it says in the Psalms, it shows how we relate to our Maker, it shows how we relate to Jesus. If we feed the hungry, Jesus says, You fed me. And if we don't feed the hungry, He says, You didn't feed me when I was hungry. It's sobering, but it's also beautiful and powerful and transformative. Jesus told the religious leaders of his day that they had neglected the weightier matters of the law. In Matthew 23, verse 23, he says, you've neglected the weightier matters. And what are the weightier matters? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And you know, when Jesus said, you'll always have the poor with you, we can hear that. We can put a tone on that where we hear it as a statement of resignation. You'll always have the poor with you nothing you can do really. That's not how Jesus said it. And it's interesting that we rarely hear Jesus um, saying this quoted from Mark um, Mark 14 verse 7, where Jesus actually said, you'll always have the poor with you whenever you want, you can do good to them. It's not a statement of resignation. It's a statement of they're always going to be among you, so there's always going to be something to do. And you can do it whenever you want to, because it's not hard to find someone in poverty near you. I've got eight minutes left and I'm at the early church. It's going all right, I hope. From my perspective, hopefully it is from yours as well. So in the time of the early church, after Jesus had died and he'd risen from the dead and he would ascended into heaven, in the time of the early church, there would have been great economic need. According to sociologists and historians, they reckon that in any Roman or Greek city in those days, about 50% of the population would have been in poverty or teetering on the edge of poverty. And so it's no surprise that in the book of Acts in the Bible, we see the early church engaged in helping the poor among them. Do you know what's really fascinating to me is in Acts 4, it says, there was no one in need among them. So they're living out what God said in Deuteronomy 15. In Deuteronomy 15, where God said, there need be no poor among you. And as I said, actually, the people that God was saying that to were still trapped in the power of their sin. So they were powerless to keep up with what God wanted to do. They were powerless to live the way God had called them to live. And yet the early church had received the spirit of God the one who shapes our hearts, the one who makes us want to be more like Jesus and to live the way we were called to live. So he empowers us to be able to live as a community where there's no one in need among us. And we see it in Acts 4, that's what they did. Imagine how those around them would have looked at them. It would have been weird, wouldn't it, to be, you know, about half of any population is in poverty Or on the edge of poverty, and yet there's this strange community of Jesus followers where there's no poverty at all. It would have been in stark contrast to what was happening in society, and that's what God calls us to today. This wasn't just for the early church, this is for us now as well. This is supposed to set us apart. Our community is supposed to look at us and go, Wow, look at how they live we need to ask them how they do it. We need to find out what's going on with them because they live so differently to us. In Acts, we see people um, such as Dorcas, who's famous for being raised from the dead. And I guess, you know, if that happens to you, you would be famous for it. But it also says in Acts 9 verse 36 that she was always doing good and helping the poor. You know, commentators say that, Maybe one of the reasons it was so important that Dorcas was raised from the dead, because we don't hear about loads and loads of people being raised from the dead, but we hear about it of Dorcas. Maybe one of the reasons she was raised from the dead is because what she was doing, uh, where it says she was doing good and helping the poor, was so vital that they felt like they couldn't do without her. I had up social action here, by the way, as a church, so if I die, I would expect some <laughs> resurrection A challenge for you, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Oh well, he says. Oh well. Dorcas, though, she was like the wife of noble character who's described in Proverbs 31 as a woman who uses her skills for the good of those in need around her. Isn't it amazing when we get, we get, God invites us to use our skills for the good of those around us. Again, it's wonderful. In Acts 11, we see there's a prophet called Agabus, and he prophesies that a famine is coming. And because he prophesies it, the people of God are able to make sure that everyone will be provided for. They're able to prepare for it. And, you know, that's something God still does today as well. God still tells his people when hard times are going to hit so that we can prepare for it. You know, as well as working for the church here, I work for a charity called Jubilee Plus. And we have heard from several people with a prophetic gifting that worse times are going to come for this country in terms of poverty and in terms of need. I mean, we're seeing it. We're seeing it in things like our own food bank that's seen such a massive rise in need in the last couple of years. But the reason God tells us isn't so we live in fear, it's so we prepare so we get ready. It's why we're building a warehouse here. It's why we're building a community action hub, because we want to be on the front foot. We don't want to wait until there's even greater need than there currently is. We want to prepare for what's coming, because God has spoken, because he always does. He tells his people so that we can get ready. Coming on to the letters to the churches, which is Romans to two Thessalonians. I'll just mention one passage, which is Galatians 2 where it's part of the apostolic mandate. It's part of... So we can think, we shouldn't, but we can think in terms of hierarchy in church structures, and we can think all the apostles, they were kind of the creme de la creme, if you like. Actually... It's not that the apostles get to go off and do the important stuff and the rest of us can think about care for the poor. No, it's that every single person, whether you feel like you are the least among us or the greatest among us, God calls you to care for the poor as well. And it's in the pastoral letters, 1 Timothy to Jude. Particularly if we look at the book of James where he echoes Isaiah 58, James says, care for the poor is what true religion is. He says, what good is it if we bless people, but we don't provide bread when they're hungry? And actually, John goes even further in 1 John 3, where it says, if we have stuff, if we've got money, if we've got possessions, but we don't give to those in need, how can the love of God be in us? And, you know, these verses really hit home for me recently. Um, I was talking to someone in the church whose permission I have to share this story. And they were telling me about credit card debt that they were in and how they felt trapped by it. They were telling me that they felt that they were never going to get out of it because they couldn't even pay off all the interest each month, let alone make any headway into the debt itself. They felt like they were never going to be free from it. And while they were telling me, in my head I was thinking, I must offer to pray. When they finished telling me, "I, I will offer to pray. And you know what? I felt in just a few seconds, God say to me, why don't you just not pray and just answer your own prayer? Why don't you loan them the money interest free so you can pay off their credit card and give, you know, you can help them out? I said, no. I said, no, God, I can't do that. This is all happening in my head while we're still having a conversation. And I was like, no, no, God, I can't do that. And then I asked the person how much the amount was. And when they told me, I was like, definitely not doing it. I said, God, I can't. That is the money that I've got set aside. What if something goes wrong with my car? What if something goes wrong with my boiler? What if I need that money? You know, I, I've got a flat now, God. I can't be irresponsible. I had all these arguments in my head. Funnily enough, God didn't seem overly concerned with my arguments. I was saying to God in my head, what if they, something happens and they can't pay me back? God just said to me, it's not your money. It's awful when that happens. (laughs) It is. But do you know what? I really think that God wanted to see if I would put my money where my mouth is. Because, you know, I get to speak and write on poverty a lot. And it'd be really easy for me to stand here and tell you about the wonderful food bank and baby basics and anti-trafficking work and pregnancy crisis and all the things we do in TLG. But actually, this, is, this has a personal response. God calls us to disrupt our own comfort. And it's not nice, and it's not comfortable, and it is, you know, I head up social action on behalf of the church, but this is a journey for every single one of us. Are we prepared to do what God is asking us to do. And you know, when I eventually said yes to God, and and honestly, I said no at least five times before I said yes, it was a real struggle. But when I said yes, and I said to the person in front of me, I'll lend you the money interest-free and you can take your time to pay me back, their eyes filled with tears. And they said that they had been too ashamed to tell anyone about the debt they were in. And I was the first person they told. And they said that because I responded to them with kindness, what it told them was that God wasn't judging them for getting into debt. God wanted them to be set free. It showed them his heart for them. I'd love it if the band could come back up. You know, that's the application for us this morning because this is in us as a church. This is in our vision as a church. It's who we want to be. But it's not just who we want to be corporately. It's who we want to be individually. And so how we respond this morning, in a minute we're going to sing a song by way of response. But how we respond, you might think I'm going to get involved in one of the projects that the church runs. You might think that. But please also think about just going away and looking at some of these verses in the Bible and saying to God, shape my heart. Pour out your spirit on me and shape my heart and lead me out of my comfort. Saying to God, change my heart, have my money, have my home, have my friendship group, do what you want with them. Is one of the hardest things I think we can say. But God invites us to do it. There are promises attached to it when we do. And it's what ultimately will set us apart from every other people around us as the people of God. I'll just finish on this quote from our own Paul man. He said, preaching here, God has a bias towards the poor. How's your bias? Is it the same as God's? Why don't we stand and respond